0: morning, everybody. Thank you. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here, and then my main job is to direct our college ministry called the Salt Company. So excited to get to preach to you guys this morning. I don't know what you're uh, expecting coming here uh, today, but we're just going to talk about the greatest truths in all of the universe, the best stuff you could ever talk about. And in a, in a sense. We're kind of always doing that, or we should always, in a sense, be doing that every Sunday when we gather, but we're in the middle of a series right now looking at specifically the Romans chapters 5 through 8 that is just like a a thorough unpacking of the best news you could ever hear, that God saves sinners like you and me. And so we marched through Romans chapter 5, I think it was like three or four weeks, and it just ended last week, and now we're jumping into chapter 6 today. So if you have your Bibles want to go to Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at chapter 6 over the course of two weeks. And do you remember how, how chapter 5 ended last week? Does anyone remember? You could, you could look. Look at the last couple verses. Romans 5, it, it's like this mountaintop ending. It ends with just this, this glorious, triumphant picture of God's grace just kind of marching throughout history, being way stronger than sin and death. Listen to what it says. Now, where the law came in to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it's almost as if Jesus, as he's laying there dying on the cross and his blood is poured out, we see that that blood is paying the penalty for our sin and then that blood, it turns into just a, a, a waterfall, a gushing river, whatever kind of water metaphor makes you excited, marching throughout history, forgiving us of our sin. It says, it says grace reigned where sin and death used to reign. There's one thing that everybody agrees on, all humans, it's that death reigns, right? Death comes for everybody. And before death, there's guilt and there's shame in this life. But the greatest news we could ever hear is that the blood of Jesus is marching throughout history, forgiving us of our sins. And we say, God, I don't deserve that. And he says, that's why I'm using the word grace. Because grace is a love that you don't deserve. So just this just this triumphant picture at the end of last week, grace reigning. And there's something about that in our Christian life that we need that. We need to, to look at just the big thing that God is doing. But then Monday morning comes, and our feet are on the ground, and we need to, to also walk and figure out how do we live this life kind of on the ground. And that's what Romans 6 is going to be so helpful for us. If Romans 5 is just this glorious theology about grace, Romans 6 and 7 is now that grace touching down on just just the messy reality of our lives, our questions, and specifically our sin. And so we've talked about sin up until this point, but maybe you don't have a great working definition of it still. So here's just one way we, could, we can understand it from the Bible. I think you see this in Romans chapter one, if you wanted to look back, but sin is willful rebellion against God, both in motive and action. So it's, it's willful. It's, it's something that is both our nature, but then we will it. So you don't have to teach your, your kids to sin. They just start to naturally do it. And it's because that it's, it's our nature. And so it's, it's willful. We're accountable for it. It's rebellion against God. Sin is everything from, from living your life ignoring God to actual conscious acts of like, this is against God. It's a total anti-God way of living. And it's so pervasive. It's both in motive and action. It's both the things that people can't see always, our motives inside of us. It's, it's, it's coming out of our heart. But then obviously it's expressed in action. Sin. Willful rebellion against God, both in motive and action. And God's grace is now going to touch down in, in that reality of, of what do we do about our sin. Here's what we've learned so far. Romans chapter 5, we learned this word justification, and that means that, that God's grace, the gospel, has paid the penalty for our sin. If you're a Christian, the penalty of your sin has been paid for. In Romans 6 and 7, where we're going to be for the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that the power of sin has been broken but we need to learn how to live in that reality. And that's called sanctification. So we have justification, penalty of sin, paid for, gone. Power of sin, it's been broken, but for some reason we as Christians have this tendency to still live under its power. So we have this lifelong battle, it's called sanctification. And then that's gonna go into the beginning of Romans 8, but Romans 8 is gonna end with just this, this beautiful picture and this great hope that we have that one day the very presence of sin will be gone and we will be glorified forever. The penalty of sin has been paid for. The power of sin has been broken. One day, the presence of sin will not remain anymore, and we will be in glory. But that word sanctification, that's like the space that we live. That's, mo- that's Monday morning when you walk out in the world like, what do I do with this grace of God in my life? And honestly, if you care about that, if you care about this, this sin issue in your life, that's one of the great signs that you are truly a Christian. <laughs> you, have, you have now, like if you're starting to realize, man, I am, I am way worse than I ever thought, what a great sign that the grace of God is working in your life. I've told some of you guys in my story, like my freshman year in college, when, when I really believe that's when God opened the eyes of my heart to see Jesus and all his beauty and want to follow him, I, I started realizing how sinful I was. And I remember Googling it, just like on my laptop in my dorm room saying, why can I not stop sinning? That was what my Google search history would have said freshman year. And, and in a great way, I actually found uh, sermons and messages on these chapters of the Bible because they're so helpful, Romans chapter 6, for what it is to fight against sin. And that's where, where Paul is going to take us. So look at verse 1 of chapter 6, okay? He's basically going to ask uh, two rhetorical questions, one this week and one next, both as they relate to our battle against sin. And here it is, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What should we say then? So he's obviously referring back to Romans chapter 5. If grace is abounding, if grace is so powerful, what what do we do? How do we live in response to that? Should we just keep sinning? So in other words, think about this. Is this a question that you've asked? If God has already forgiven me of everything that I've ever done or will do, which that's true, then should I not just keep sinning and, and enjoy my life because I'm, I'm going to be forgiven? I agree that sin is strong, but if God's grace is stronger, then why not keep sinning so that I'll just kind of keep racking up the forgiveness? You see the, the logic of the, of the question there? It's a question that, that all of us have, and, and really, maybe you've wondered that, like, why not, why not take that deal? So I can, be, I can be forgiven, and I can continue enjoying the sins. Because let's be honest about sin, we, we, if you're a Christian, you've learned to hate it, but you still love it. You do. The, the, think about your specific, concrete sins that you love. We sin because it is our desire. And it's not the same for everybody. There's probably some sin in your life that, that you love, that there's a, a, in my life, that it's something that I've learned to hate. And that's what sanctification is about But why not take that deal? That's that's the question. And and guys, the basic answer is because, number one, that isn't the deal that God's offering us. That just isn't the deal, that's not how grace works, that's not how the gospel works, and it's not the deal that you want anyways. It's not how it works, and that's not how you want. So look at Paul's uh, answer, just at the beginning of verse two here. No, right? No, by no means. Your translation might say, absolutely not. There's a note of like, are you crazy? Are you, cra- are you serious? After you just listen to me un- unpack grace. Now, but he's, he's not belittling us because he, he gets it. He's going to go in to explain why because this is a very honest question. This is a question that we all ask. It's a question that grace gets brought up. But what Paul is going to say is like, are you crazy? You must, you must not uh, understand sin. You must not remember what it is, what sin is. And you must have also forget, forgotten about what, what grace is. Because grace, it leads us to kill our sin, not continue in our sin. That's what grace does. When abundant grace is poured out onto the life of a sinful person, like me, like you, it actually it drowns sin. It kills sin. Verses 12 through 14 is going to be Paul's explanation of of really why and how. Why is it that grace doesn't mean we should continue in sin? Why is it that it actually kills sin? And then how do we live free from its power? So let's just read the first 11 verses, and we'll jump into that first question of why. Okay, Romans 6, picking it back up in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, so so he's looking us in the eye here, so in light of that, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's stop there for now and just ask that, that first question of why not continue in sin? Paul, he basically does two things here and they're woven in and out. We're gonna take them one at a time. He exposes the truth about sin and then he clarifies the purpose of grace. And that's our answer for why. Okay, so first, he exposes the truth about sin. So we got the Iron Man happening out there, right? Why don't you just picture your life right now as, as a race for a second? It'll be helpful. Picture your life as a race. And what sin is, is sin. It's, it's, a, it's a lie that is inviting you to live a life that is also a lie. And it does it through promises, and like any good lie, it, it works, right? Have you ever told a lie that it worked out for you for a while and you're able to deceive people? That's, a, that's, what a, that's what a lie is, right? Sin, you see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, is, is just this great lie about an alternative way of being human, an alternative way to live your life that is going to lead to more joy, more fullness, more satisfaction, more freedom, you name it, whatever, Sin makes promises on this road that we call life and it invites us to kind of just keep walking in this way, this way that we would call sinful, anti-God, against God, willful rebellion against him. But, but the exposure here that Paul does in the verse, he exposes that sin's promises are lies. The promises sin makes to your life, it cannot deliver on. And he exposes that. First, sin, it promises glory, but it leads to shame it's in promises glory leads to shame i'll show you it in the text in a second but just think about this just in your life so gossip right that's sinful it's, it's, it's cutting people down with your words it's defaming people with your words and why do we do it what's the promise isn't the promise that we will somehow be built up we will feel more significant if we defame another person we'll get we'll get some glory selfish ambition think about your career think about what is what is ultimately getting you out of bed in the morning and motivating you selfish ambition is something the bible calls sin and the promise there is that we're going to get the applause of people and we'll finally feel okay about ourselves greed another thing the bible clearly calls sin and the promise here with greed is that if we hoard our resources hoard our time hoard our money we're going to achieve a higher status and that will bring satisfaction. But these things are all called sin because they are promises of glory that ultimately lead to shame. Look at how Paul exposes it. Look back at verse 4. It says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So if, if, G, if the most glorious thing that has ever happened was Jesus being raised from the dead by the, by the glory of the Father, what does that say about the glory that we pursue on this earth? The most, most meaningful event in the history of the world is the resurrection of Jesus and that, and that God has all true glory in himself. What does that say about the glory that we pursue? Look at verse 6 we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Sin here is exposed as basically amounting to nothing. Promises us meaning, promises us identity, promises us glory, but leads to shame. And honestly, maybe it hasn't like totally played out like that for you yet. Like maybe if we talk specifically career, maybe you've just been so successful that it's always worked. And so you're feeling the glory. It seems like sin is delivering on its promise. I was reading an article this week in the New York Times about this thing called the arrival fallacy that speaks to that specific issue. So here is sin exposed. So the arrival fallacy is the illusion that once we make it, once we attain our goal or reach our destination, we will reach lasting happiness. This is from Tal Ben-Shahar. He's a Harvard-trained positive psychology expert. Dr. Ben-Shahar said the arrival fallacy is the reason that some Hollywood stars struggle with mental health issues and substance abuse later in life. These individuals start out unhappy, but they say to themselves, it's okay, because when I make it, then I'll be happy. He said, but then they make it, and while they may briefly feel fulfilled, the feeling doesn't last. This time, they're unhappy, but more than that, they're unhappy without hope, he explained. Because before they lived under the illusion, well, the false hope, that once they make it, then they'll be happy. The problem is that achievement doesn't equal happiness, at least not over the long term. But this isn't the message that most of us are familiar with. In fact, it's almost antithetical to the American dream, which tells us that hard work and achievement deliver a happy life. And so we push our children to become captain of the travel soccer squad a first chair player in the orchestra, and student body president, all because we want them to be successful, we want them to be happy. This is the arrival fallacy, and this person that's not a Christian is exposing it as an illusion. It's an illusion, that's how sin works. You guys know what an illusion is? An illusion is like those red balls at Target. You guys know those are not uh, bouncy balls? Those are made of rock and stone, and if you kick them, it hurts your foot very bad. I learned my lesson. I didn't learn my lesson in Madison, but back in, back in Ohio. It's, a, it's an illusion. And this is what sin is doing, is it's promising us glory, but like the arrival fallacy is shown to be, it's an illusion. So the promise of sin that we'd be glorious and significant, it ultimately leads to shame, either in this life or we'll experience it at the end. Here's another thing that Paul exposes. Sin promises freedom, but leads to slavery. Promises freedom leads to slavery. We're gonna get to this one more next week, but just real quick, look at verses six and seven. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer, what? Be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul is exposing here that what sin is doing in our lives, it's, it's enslaving us. And you know how this works. Look at, look at verse 12 with me. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is sin's, sin's offer. It offers you freedom. It offers you control over your life and that is the bait that it uses to then enslave you. Probably nowhere is it easier to see this than in, in just the realm of, of addiction. So you think about something like lust and, and pornography. The offer there is... is unlimited freedom I can have what I want when I want with just a click of a a button total autonomy if I if I need pleasure if I want pleasure if I feel stressed whatever it is I can just I can just do it and if you feel so free you can just make the choice and you can just do it you have the world at your at your fingertips but that freedom the promise of freedom quickly turns into slavery sin is enslaving you and even as you get that rush of freedom, that is just furthering sin's work of enslaving you. And Paul, Paul exposes it here. right? He's, he's trying to remember, he's trying to remind us of why we should not continue in sin. It promises freedom and leads to slavery. And then the last one, this is more of like the overarching thing about sin. It promises life, but it leads to death. This is the promise of life. On, on, on the road called our life, it says you can have the good life if you live this way. But the end of that road is death. If you look at our, our passage, it talks about Jesus dying for us. Look at, look at verse uh, the end of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his what? His death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let me ask you a question. If the, the death of, of Jesus on the cross defeated sin, what does that say about the direction sin was heading? Death. It's, it's exposed here. Sin does not lead to life, although it promises it. And I know that continuing in sin, that feels like life, because that's the life that we've always known. But Paul here is exposing it and saying it it leads to death. So sin is is just exposed. And that's the first thing he kind of has to do to wrestle it free from our hearts. And we should now be saying, you know, I don't I don't want to live in sin anymore. Where well, we were first asking the question of, you know, maybe I should take that deal. Now we say we see sin for what it is, and we don't want to live anymore. And the good news is that we don't have to. That is the good news. Sin's promises are lies, but sin's power has been defeated. Isn't that what our passage is about? Look at verses 9 and 10 again. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has any dominion over him, no power over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Listen, Jesus killed your sin before it could kill you. Sin is exposed as trying to lead us to death, and the good news of the gospel is that on that road that you were walking down, Jesus, he kind of steps in front of you and he kills your sin before it could kill you. So listen, look back at verse six. We died to sin in Christ. We know that our old self was crucified in him, the old self that was heading towards death. Why? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The reason for the death of Jesus is to set us free. You know the power of sin over your life is, is unforgiven sin. Satan, the devil, that's, that's, the, that's the power. The power that he has, the only real power he has is, is unforgiven sin. And if your sin is forgiven, he has no power over you. So by paying the penalty for the sin on, our cro- on his cross, Jesus removed its rightful power from our lives no more death sentence hanging over us. So verse one and two again. How can we continue in sin when we died to it? It's not enough to stop going down the road of sin. It's not enough to just kind of see it exposed and say, oh yeah, I don't want to go that way anymore. We also need to see what the purpose of grace is in our life. And that's what he does next. Okay, so he clarifies the purpose of of grace. So when we think about grace, think with me for a second, we tend to view the purpose of grace as primarily taking us to a place of eternal life in the future. So taking us from where we are right now, someday in the future we're going to be taken to a place of eternal life, but it has little effect on us in the present. Okay, so imagine we're back out at the Ironman again. We're we're running this race called life, and it's almost like, so your conception of grace is Jesus, he sees you, and he knows that the race is hard, and he comes in, and he gives you a cup of water, an affirming pat on the back. He cheers you on, and he says, I'm going to be with you now on this race, and I'll see you at the finish line, and and maybe he gives you like a a ticket to heaven at the end. So we're on this race, and Jesus just kind of comes in. This is not the purpose of grace that we see in our passage. Look back at verse four with me. It says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, what? We too might walk in newness of life. You see the little words there, in order that? We were buried with him in baptism, so we identified with the death of Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, in order that, for the purpose of, so that what? We would be raised and walk in newness of life. So the purpose of grace isn't to just take us to somewhere in the future, but it's to unite us to a person, a new relationship, Jesus, right now. Our eternal life starts now. So now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him now, right now, so we're on the race again, and it's not that Jesus comes alongside and says, I know that the race is hard, I know you don't feel so good about yourself, like you're kind of carrying this, this guilt, let me give you some water and keep you going. Jesus comes in and he tackles us in the race, okay? And we go, we go down, tumbling, we might scrape up our knee and our elbow, like whatever, like it can be a violent thing when you meet the grace of God, because the grace of God comes into you and says, I love you, but you're going the wrong way, doesn't it? If you're a Christian, you know that. It's this simultaneous, I love you and I forgive you, but the thing I'm forgiving you for is being on this wrong road. So the purpose of grace is not to keep us going the direction we were already going in our sinful lives, but to actually take us off and, and, at the, and like turn us around, or better yet, probably put us on a whole new race. This is what the purpose of grace, it's, it's what we would call union with Christ. Union with Christ, not a free ticket to heaven someday, But union, intimate relationship with him right now. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we have died with Jesus and we have truly been united to that, meaning our sin was paid for, then surely, certainly, we have been united with him in a resurrection like his. Union with Christ. This is the purpose of grace, to unite us to Jesus. He tackles us and he never lets us go. So we get what Jesus gets and we go where Jesus goes. So it's, it's kind of like marriage. Marriage is, is the, the biblical uh, example pointing to our union with Christ. And so not all of us in this room are married or, or necessarily even will be married, but we can look at it just as a metaphor that the Bible gives us saying, this is the closest thing we have pointing to the reality of what it really means to be a Christian. It's to be united with Jesus, intimately connected to his life. Where he goes, we go, and what he gets, we get. You see that? So it's not it's not a ticket to heaven in the future, but it's it's right now. Relationship right now. In our union with Christ, it's it's the reversal of the false promises of sin. That's what we need to know and remind ourselves again and again when it comes to sin, because Satan is so clever. He's making promises to us, sin makes promises to us on this road that are tapping into our real longings and our desires, right? But then taking us to death. Jesus, he actually gives us what we've been after the whole time. We have real glory, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we have died with Christ, we believe we will live with him. Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, the greatness of the Father, and we are united to that. We too are eternally significant because we're united with him. We have true freedom. Our old self was crucified with Christ. It's been brought to nothing. We've been set free from sin we'll do this one a little more next week but guys true freedom is not the absence of any restriction on your life but it's the presence of of like the right boundaries that actually help you flourish we learn this with with, uh, children growing up right like we give them rules not because we want them to suffer but because we want them to flourish and have joy you can only be truly free with the presence of the right restrictions and boundaries and with Jesus we get that we're united to him. And then, of course, we have a new life, and it's the good life. Verse 8, we believe that we will also live with him. And listen to this, the life that he lives, he lives to God. Jesus is living a life to God. Let I me mean, just logically play that out for a second. God, the creator of the universe, everything you, you enjoy now is just faintly echoing, towards him, and Jesus is now living a life to God and we're united to him, doesn't that mean that in our union with him, we will be living that life as well? So I did a a wedding last weekend in Ames, and just that moment, if you've been to a wedding before where where the the bride and groom are meeting at the altar, there's something you can almost just feel in the air, isn't there? It's tangible, And, and I would tell you, the thing that you're feeling, you're seeing a union that's about to happen. And we're, we're just witnessing this transaction, and it's reality. It's, in, it's invisible in a sense, but it's, it's real, and you can feel it. And that's why we cry, and we do all these things, and we celebrate, right? You can feel the glory of it, the significance of it. That's why you get goosebumps. Goosebumps are, are pointing to something that like, that is, that is just, that is more than, than ordinary. That is not normal. That is significant. You feel the glory of them about to be uniting, two people becoming one. We look at them and we don't say like, oh my gosh, total loss of freedom. I mean, we might joke about things like that, right? And that's okay. But nobody would get married knowing the loss of freedom that you're going to have if you didn't think that on the other side of it, that coming together, giving up some of your freedom for the sake of something even better leads to flourishing. And then the new life, we're just, we're anticipating and looking to their their new Life. This is all pointing to what is really true of you right now in your union with Jesus. So, summary of Paul's answer. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? No, right? That's crazy, and why is that crazy? Verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We can't continue in sin because we are united to Christ. That's his answer. And now we know more fully what it means to be united to Christ. And we see why wow, that is a crazy deal that we don't even want and we don't have to take. So verse 11, says this, You must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What do we, what do, we do with this? He says, consider yourself. He says, so, looking back on that, you have to consider yourself first dead to sin. You have to, look, you have to consider what is actually really true. So we stop living a lie and live what is really true if you're a Christian. Consider yourself dead to sin. Sometimes I think about this as, uh, you know, you can think about it like sin in general, but also just concrete, specific sins in your life. You need to have a, a breakup or a funeral with that sin. Because that's what has really happened, right? It's gone. You can't harbor it anymore. You can't hold, hold on to it. And a breakup is, it hurts. You mourn. You have a funeral for something or someone and and it's sad. And for sin that we lived our whole lives loving, it would make sense for there to be some sense of like a a mourning or a sadness or at the very least a a pain that, you know what, never again. Never again. I know that I'll still struggle, but I'm, I'm considering myself. In my mind, in my heart, I'm saying, I'm dead to that. It's gone. I'm leaving it behind. And if the sin in your life, you'll know if it's going to still hang around, if you haven't had that type of an emotional uh, farewell to it. So consider yourself dead to sin. I wonder what that is for you. Second half, consider yourself alive to God through your union with Christ. Consider yourself alive to God. This is back to the marriage analogy. It's like you get married and you kiss the bride and you're walking down the aisle and you know that now that you're married, but you still remember two minutes ago when you weren't. You still remember a day ago. You still remember a week ago. You still remember your whole history up until this point, but you know that your reality has changed. You're now united with this other person. Two have become one, but you start to consider yourself married, don't you? You do. You do doesn't mean you don't remember, but you you consider your new union. So the moment you get married, you remember your old life, but you now prepare yourself mentally, emotionally, for the new life that is to come. We have to consider ourselves. But the fight against sin, it's more than just understanding and considering, kind of cognitively, even, even emotionally. That is the foundation. You have to know this truth and believe it. But where Paul's going to take us next here at the end is just this, this experience of experiencing our new life. How to live free from sin. We talked about why to live free from sin, but now how? Look at verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for, un, for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So how to live free from sin? Guys, we've got to be honest and say we live in the overlap, where we are justified, but we're not yet glorified. So we're in the middle here, trying to be sanctified, trying to live free from sin. And Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, because it doesn't have to anymore. It doesn't have the power to reign, so don't don't let it rain. How do we do that? Verse 13 is how he how explained it. And I would just sum verse 13 up as, as we cultivate, we practice new habits that are fueled by new desires. It says, present yourselves to God instead of to sin. That word there, instruments, other translations will say weapons. Basically just put your, yourself, your new life, as a, as a tool in the hands of God instead of a tool in the hands of God of Satan and sin. Again, it's like learning to be married. You have a lot of old habits from your old life, but you know that your reality has changed, and so you're learning these new habits. So for the Christian, like the way that you've used your tongue to gossip, and you remember that, you have tendencies towards that, you have habits towards that, but now you're learning to replace that with honoring speech, encouraging speech. And it's it's replacing it. Thomas Chalmers is a, was a Scottish pastor and he talks about killing sin by dispossessing it with new habits. He uses this word expulsion, which is like we, you get expelled from school. So we kick sin out of our lives by putting a new habit in its place. Listen to what he says. Seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by the mere force of mental determination. So consider yourself important But it's not going to get rid of sin all by itself. Reason and willpower are not enough. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. I'll repeat that. Did you listen to me? The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. We replace it with a new habit, but not just any old habit. It's a new habit that is fueled by a new desire. I love in verse 13 how it says, as those who have been brought from death to life. That's, that's our, our new desire. We see, we know we've been brought from death to life. Sin has been exposed for what it is. Grace has been clarified for where it's taking us. And we have these new affections that are fueling new habits. We present ourselves as instruments of righteousness to God. St. Augustine put it like this when he talks about just the habits being fueled by new, new desires. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of these fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Anybody resonate with that right now? Is there a sin in your life that is producing fruitless joy, but you're still afraid to lose it? Augustine says, how sweet it was when it was finally gone. You drove them from me, talking about God. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. Oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. It says, I remember the fruitless joys, but God, when I saw you, Jesus, when I was united to you, when I experienced your glory, your freedom, your new life, the fruitless joys, sin exposed for what it is, they started to lose their power. I started to replace the old ways I used to live with these new ways. And this is called sanctification. This is how grace drowns out sin and kills it. We present ourselves to God. And just three little practicals on, on the way out as this relates. Okay, so, so new habits fueled by new desires. But first, this is going to take time. This is our life. Sanctification is like the, the bulk of your life after you become a Christian. I remember writing that quote from Augustine down in a journal when I was a sophomore in college just battling and struggling with sin. Writing that down and just wondering, like, is, am I ever gonna look at this quote and look back at my life in sin and see progress and know a little bit more of what he's talking about? I mean, I found that journal this year and I can look back and go, wow. I do know more of what he's talking about. I and mean, now there's new sin <laughs> that I'm applying this to, right? But, but I do know, and that was, I don't even know how long ago, six or seven years ago, five years ago, takes time. This is our life battle. This happens in everyday life. That's the other just little thing. Like as you picture everything that we've just been considering together, like the arena for this happening is alarm clock goes off in the morning, bed hits the pillow at night, right? All the nitty-gritty just in between. So much of our sin, is it not, is just like us relating to people and trying to figure out how to talk to them and how to serve them and how to love them and how to not tear them tear them down. Like this is the arena sanctification. We get together on Sundays, and we get together in connection groups, and we get together informally throughout the week with other Christians, but we're also just around people all the time. And so, fighting this for the long haul, but in in everyday life, that's where it's gonna happen. And then just the last little thing is, you have to start somewhere. Hopefully, God has brought up some, like, just specific area of sin in your life as we've been considering this. And and I would just say, whatever that is, whatever the Holy Spirit's put on your heart, Start, start there in terms of expelling it from your life and replacing it with a new habit. So Romans chapter six, we leave sin behind because we're united to Jesus. And we get what he gets, we don't need sin anymore. And we're going where he's going, an eternal life that starts now. And people start to notice when we become instruments of righteousness. Tools in the hand of God instead of tools in the hand of sin. That's where we're going together as a church. Let's pray. God, when we consider sin, we need to we need you to help us feel convicted of it in the right ways. But I do pray that just that abundant grace that we've been hearing about, reading about, singing about, would prove again and again to be so much stronger than sin. God, help us to walk in the light of forgiveness, the freedom of forgiveness. God, help us to know what the new habits are that we need to start forming for the new desires that you've given us for you. God, help us to be a people more and more free from sin free from slavery, expose sin in our lives more and more for what it is and invite us more and more to live in the path that is truly life. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you for coming to us. God, we sing to you now because you have done it.